last night to keep it from being broken, I took it out of my pocket because I was up on the roof and I placed it on the hood of Tammy's car. Mm. Oh, you were doing Christmas lights? You put it on the hood of Tammy's car? And this morning when I woke up, I remembered I did not get it off the hood of her car. And my wife left it for me out on the street. But you found it? Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church. This is episode 44. Man, every single week, Pastor Matt Brown is answering your tough questions with real answers from himself. I'm your friendly host, Justin Pardee, hanging out here with the one and only Pastor Matt Brown and our co-host today, Bernice. How are you? Bernice. God, I have a different name every week. This Wait, is there's Stephanie. a, lot of, a, lot, of, a lot of ladies that have been showing up in the uh, last couple of chapters. I know, of, but it doesn't mean yeah. that I have to be the token lady questionable character. every time. Yeah, Bernice is... You've kind of risque. Right. Well, Stephanie, we'll see how you do on this particular show. That I got a Bible me. verse for you. Proverbs 31. Oh, Ooh. that's a whole, uh, that's a whole chapter. chapter. Yeah, that's yeah. a chapter. Hey, man, chew, chew, chew on that. Have some devos. Have some devos. Have some devos. Wow, thanks, guys. <laughs> exactly. Always oh, helping me out here. I'm going to pray for a hedge of protection, <laughs> hedge of protection. around you. Oh, Thank man, you. that's awesome. Full hedge. We need a hedge of protection Large you. hedge. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, man, we, we have some awesome news. Man, we are here in the month of December, and we are putting together a Christmas gift for you guys. That's right, Cold Gold Volume 2 is going to be dropping here at the end of the month with all kinds of goodness we've got for you guys from the pre-brief. Just make sure Stephanie approves all the Cold Gold. Oh, we'll oh make I sure. will. Yes, thank you. I don't trust Justin. Well. Nor should you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I accept, yeah. I accept that challenge. I just dropped some real. Wow. Boom. Here's the other awesome news. Literally in just a week or two, producer Kelly and the Sandal Church production team are gearing up to start outfitting our brand new uh, podcast recording studio, Woo-hoo! which sounds pretty awesome, but it's really just a, a room with a bunch of cloth in it so that it sounds better when we record. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is going to be super awesome. We're going to move into that in the very beginning of January. So the next batch of episodes there are going to start sounding even better in your ears so all kinds of doors slamming people screaming exactly the things that happen outside this room are yeah we had to we had to kind of pause the show last week because there was somebody screaming it sounded like uh the x-men arcade game colossus was powering up Mm. in the background it's because our staff needs jesus yeah i think they were working on some kind of video for kids but uh it was very distracting it's very distracting so uh future podcasts will be less distracting the only distraction will come from our own selves which 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 is enough on our own (laughs) yeah well hey before we get into some awesome questions man we absolutely love hearing from you guys getting your great feedback on the show we got a five-star review from itunes that came in this is from feds out do ya is the nickname which i was trying to read trying to i'd like some context feds out do ya yeah what's the his uh his review says pastor matt brown this is great thank you not bad. Not that's, bad. That, that's five star. That feels four star. <laughs> it definitely, it definitely. Let's, let's he not gave rate us, his review. He gave us all five of the stars. No, yeah. this is like I think the stars. This are the is review. like Airbnb. You rate me, then I rate you. <laughs> well, there you okay. go. Hey, we got another awesome five star review from friend of the show, Ken. This is Ken, and this is my five star review. Excellent, Ken. Thank you Thanks, so Ken. much. That yeah. was awesome. And then we, we have I don't know one if you more. knew this, but you know, Ken flew yeah. with Captain Sully in flight school. Sully yeah. uh, of the Hudson River. Yeah, the Hudson River fame. Yeah, Captain hero, Sully the Hudson River hero. So exactly. yeah, Ken was uh, in flight school in the United States military with Sully. I've seen it, seen the photographs. They graduated school together. Amazing. Really cool. Yep. Amazing. We got one more awesome review from Texas. This one comes from Linda on Facebook. She wrote in, she says, 
I am so thankful for Sandal Search and the debrief. I've been watching online for a little more than two years. And as I look back over the past couple of years, I see so much growth in my life. I thank you for pushing us to be real. Mm -hmm. A few members of my family and I are using the 252 series as our weekly Bible study together. And y'all feel like family. From Texas? Yeah. Yeah. Deep in the heart. Yep, she emailed me last week. Really, really cool. Mm. We're going to try and help her get plugged into our online groups and stuff like that. So all kinds of good stuff. All right, let's jump into... So if we start a sandals church in Texas, will it be called Boots? Oh, yeah, exactly. Or Spurs. Let's call it Spurs. Oh, Oh, there's Spurs. They kind of got a Spurs thing already going on in there. Yeah. Yeah. Texas people, y'all let us know. Yeah, that'd be an aggressive form of real. (laughs) Spurs. (laughs) Spurs. Yeah. Ouch. it, It fits somebody's personality at this table. I won't say who. Dolores. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump into some questions. We got some great follow-up uh, and uh, awesome questions you guys have sent in. Let's jump into it. That's right. Our first follow-up question is from Justin. Is this from you? Not from me. Different okay. one. Does our obedience to God have any effect on others' salvation? If I don't witness to someone or I'm a bad witness of Christianity to them, can it affect whether they will be saved or not? Yeah, that's a great question, which would really be answered based upon, you know, uh, whatever theological camp uh, you're you're in, you know, or if you're a Calvinist, you would probably say no. If you're not a Calvinist, you would probably say yes, absolutely. So here's what I would say. Uh, Let's avoid that whole theological pretzel. And let's just say this, God will hold you accountable Mm -hmm. uh, because we will stand before God on judgment day and be held accountable for whether or not we proclaim the gospel. And so really what we need to not solely be worried about is their destiny, but our judgment as we stand before God, because that's the one thing. Uh, not the one thing, really the three things is love God, love each other and share the gospel. Those are the three things that God has asked us to do. And all of our lives will be weighted on those matters. And so Christians say, wait a minute. I thought the Bible says there is that now, therefore no condemnation. Yeah, absolutely. So the word condemnation means condemn. Mm -hmm. So what it means is you won't be judged to eternal life, but it does not mean that you won't be accountable before God. And so the, the great news of the gospel is that we are no longer condemned. However, we still will stand before the master. If you need, uh, you know, some uh, more on this, read Luke chapter 12. We had a great uh, podcast on that episode where that entire judgment has to do with followers of Jesus and him returning and dealing with him. So we need to be serious about sharing the gospel. And uh, like I shared in church, you know, there was a guy afterwards, it was just in tears because one of his good friends died this week and he had never shared the gospel with her and he was just grieving. And his question was, not where is she going to go? His question was, will God ever forgive me? And I just appreciated how um, personal he took that. And so, mm-hmm. yes, I believe that God yeah. can forgive when we confess and we repent. And so there's there's two sides of repentance. One is saying, I'm sorry. Two is not doing that again. So from this point forward, he needs to do his very best to make sure that he shares the gospel whenever he has the opportunity. And we all need to do that and and make a real clear presentation to people that we love why we think God's love is so important in their life and can only be found through Jesus. And that's the way that I would share that um, with people that you love. And again, you know, you don't have to be super religious, super judgmental. You don't have to be, you know, like an aggressive salesperson, but just when the opportunity arises, talk about it. If somebody cares about you, they're going to care about Jesus in your life. And and when you have that opportunity, I would share it. So, so, so great question. Um, You know, Paul says, uh, you know, our, our sandals church name comes from the verse Romans 10, 15, blessed are the feet that bring good news. And so Paul says, how can they believe in whom they've not heard? So for Paul, salvation comes through hearing, hearing the gospel. So, you know, can they be saved without someone telling them the gospel? No, they must hear 
the words of God. They must hear the gospel. And so, you know, th- that's how I would answer that that question shortly. So whether you're, you know, lean Calvinist or non-Calvinist, Paul makes the case clearly that people come to faith in Christ by hearing the gospel. And the gospel is only heard when it is proclaimed. Mm-hmm. And so um, now there's a chance that they might hear it somewhere else from somebody else and not from you. And so, but if they don't ever hear the gospel, they cannot be saved. And so we need to be convicted by that. And that's why as a church, we're challenging a hundred people from our church to pack up and move to India to a place where people have never heard the gospel. And um, we need to do that. And we need to share it with our friends and our family members. Christianity shouldn't just be something that's personal. Mm-hmm. It needs to be something that's proclaimed. And uh, you know, that's one of the ways that Christianity has been silenced in America is as well, it's just my personal relationship with God. Well, okay, it should be personal. And what I mean by that is real to you and a part of your real life, but it needs to be shared. If it's personal, it's something you're gonna personally share. And so people need to learn to do that. So great question. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm praying for all of you who have family members, friends who are lost and don't know Jesus. And I'll, I'll be praying for you that you have the opportunity to share the gospel. Yeah, definitely. Or at the very least, invite them to church to come hang out with you and start getting exposed to what does it mean to be real? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're absolutely terrified or you don't feel equipped to share the gospel, one of two things, first, bring them to church. Number two, take our classes that we have at Sandals Church where you can learn to do that. We just had one, what, two weeks Mm -hmm. ago? We had 45 people go through the class. And it's not just where you learn principles, but you actually learn these principles and they take you out in the community and you share the gospel. Um, And you go with someone who's done it before. So you're not on your own. Uh, These are a great class. It's a great opportunity. And let me tell you, there's no greater thrill in your life than leading somebody to Jesus Christ. It is just so awesome. And uh, I, you know, as much as I enjoy preaching, personally leading someone to Jesus is way more of a thrill. It's Mm -hmm. way more awesome than simply, you know, preaching a message and seeing people respond. I love being there, seeing them experience, answering their questions and praying with them personally. That is just awesome. Yeah, totally. Uh, Okay, so we had another question come in from Chad's who says, I had an unbeliever ask me some questions and one of them I couldn't answer. He said, many of the Bible's main characters had lots of wives and wondered why Christians make a big deal about marriage being between one man and one woman. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's a great question, Chad. We're gonna do a series called Relational Killers that's Mm -hmm. coming up in February. And it's all about relationships in Genesis. And when you read the book of Genesis, you will see a plurality of uh, wives. Um, You'll see this... um, uh, in Joshua, you see it, it really in Judges. You see it quite a bit. Even Ruth, I just finished Ruth today. Ruth was probably one of Boaz's multiple wives. He was an older man. He probably had wives um, you know, previously. Jesus makes the case that that was not God's will, that uh, divorce, multiple marriages were all of a part of God trying to direct us in the context of, uh, of sinfulness and in relationship. When you look at Genesis chapter two, Adam and Eve are created as a monogamous sexual unit. So Adam sleeps with Eve, Eve sleeps with Adam, and that is it. It is after the fall that we begin to see uh, polygamous relationships. And it's really not polygamous because the word polygamous means multiple on each side. Women don't have multiple husbands in Mm -hmm. the Bible. So men have multiple wives. So it wasn't, you know, polygamous from a female perspective, but from a male perspective. And so, um, you know, as far as we know, Moses only had one wife. We don't see him having... Um, multiple wives, it's not mentioned. Uh, Same with Joseph, uh, doesn't seem to have multiple wives. And so um, when we look at Jesus, what does Jesus say about marriage? So a lot of people say, well, he didn't say anything about marriage, but he does. He says that in the beginning, God created a man and woman. And so he's making a reference to Genesis chapter two Mm -hmm. and three, and that that was the ideal. And so then we see this in uh, 
the Apostle Paul's epistles to the young pastors, uh, Timothy and Titus, where he talks about the fact that an elder or a deacon, and those are two positions of leadership. So I would be an elder. Uh, you guys would both be considered deacons, which mm-hmm. the word means minister. So elder is like pastor, bishop. Um, if you're Catholic priest, that mm-hmm. would be the word. Um, deacon, uh, like if you're Catholic would be nun, um, or they actually use the word deacon now in Catholic churches. At our church, we just translate it from the Greek to the English. So the Greek word is deacon. The English word is minister. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be both used as a noun, the position, or as a verb, the action. So you can both minister and be a minister. It's a little weird if you say, I'm a deacon and I'm deaconing. Right. Like that's, yeah. that's a little or weird. I'm a nun and I'm nunning. I'm nunning, yeah. So, or I'm priest and I'm priesting. So, but you can say I, I pastor and I'm pastoring. Mm-hmm. So the word is used that way. So, um, so it comes out specifically in the New Testament that pastors are to be the husbands of one wife, one wife. And uh, some people translate that as, even if your spouse dies, you remain single. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how emphatic the Greek is, is so, it literally could be translated a one woman man. Um, now, I, you know, I don't hold to that view, but it certainly is an acceptable translation for the passage. When That's, you say you don't hold to that view, you mean the death thing? Yeah, I, I think if, if somebody's spouse um, dies, that they are certainly capable to remarry. The apostle Paul makes that case in First Corinthians yeah. chapter seven. Um, you do hold to the view of the- Yeah, I, I don't have woman. two wives. Yes. You know, I, I just have Tammy. I've been married to her and her alone for um, 20 years. I've been sexually faithful to her for 20 years. That's the practice. That's what mm-hmm. I think that we should do. And I think it's a beautiful blessing of God. Um, but that's where it comes from. So having said that, there isn't the specific mandate in the New Testament for non-elders to have but one wife. And the reasoning behind that may have been that when the gospel was spread, it was a polygamous culture. Romans had many wives, many cultures had many wives. And so the point was the leaders must set the example pointing back to the most accurate biblical picture. Mm -hmm. And so they must set the tone and they must set the example. And over time, as cultures change and as they become Christianized, they will shift into the Christian ideal, which is one man, one woman for life, loving each other and being committed. And so that's where the idea comes from. And so Chad, let me just say this. Um, just because you read something in the Bible doesn't mean you're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. So many, many passages in scripture, we say this all the time, even about the book of Acts, it is descriptive, it is not prescriptive. So what does that mean? It describes what took place. It does not prescribe it. So in other words, you're not supposed to do it. You're supposed to simply understand that they did it. Um, for example, I just finished um, uh, Judges uh, this, this past week, and there's some really bizarre stuff takes place where one of the judges sacrifices his own daughter to oh, appease yeah. God. And it's a really, really bizarre passage. And a lot of people have a problem with that. Well, I, I can tell you, Jephthah, uh, which is his name, is a, is a military judge and he leads the Israelites in victory. He doesn't know his Bible because the Bible specifically states that you are not to sacrifice your children for God, but he does. So it describes what he did, but it is not a prescription to do that. We're mm-hmm. actually commanded not to do that. And so that's what you need to look at, Chad, is just because people were doing it, for example, Uh, the Torah says that a king must not have many wives. So does that mean that he was supposed to have one? I mean, how do you define many? Mm -hmm. And so I think the prescription there is he he was supposed to be a one woman man. And when we look at the kings of Israel, none of them accomplished that. They all struggled deeply, uh, Solomon being the worst, but even King David had a ton of wives his entire life and kept getting married and married. And in the ancient world, oftentimes, that's the way that you acquired power mm-hmm. was you married women from other families and that's the way that you built your, your greatest state. And so um, that's just not the way the world works now. Um, 
uh, it's actually the opposite. Being married is an expense. It's not something, it's not a way to acquire wealth. Yeah. So, um, all the married guys chuckled in here, (laughs) but, um, but, uh, yeah, so, so that's the reason. And so, you know, we can get into that and just understand even, I mean, like Abraham, when we get into Genesis, I mean, he told his wife to tell Pharaoh he wasn't married. So does that mean that that's what we do? No, that's what he did. He sinned in that area. The Bible doesn't sweep uh, character sin under the rug. It exposes it and mm-hmm. it shows it, which shows the need for Jesus. Right. Abraham needed Jesus. Isaac needed Jesus. Jacob needed Jesus. They all, David, Solomon, they all needed Jesus because he's the only one who was perfect. Um, and he wasn't even married. So great question, Chad. And uh, I appreciate your honesty. And I hope that 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 helps. But again, I'll say this a thousand times on this podcast, just because the Bible describes what took place doesn't mean it's prescribing it. It it means that it's not telling you to do that. It's just simply what they did. So then we go to Paul where it says, be a one woman man. We look at Jesus where he says, God's intent was that for you to be married and let no one tear it apart. Let no one come between that covenant relationship between that man and that woman. That's the words of Jesus. And Jesus tells us that that was God's heart. That was his intent from the very beginning, right? Adam and Eve, and that that was the intent. So um, thank you, Chad. Great question. Awesome. Well, let's jump into Acts chapter 25 as we celebrate Festivus this holiday season. <laughs> Festivus for the rest of us? Yes. Uh, so in verses one through two, it says that three days after Festus arrived in Caesarea to take over his new responsibilities, he left for Jerusalem where the leading priests and other Jewish leaders met with him and made their accusations against Paul. So we're introducing a new leader now, Festus. What kind of leader was he compared to Felix from the last chapter? Yeah, we don't know nearly as much about Festus as we do Felix. Um, there are, you know, most of our sources for his leadership come from the book of Acts. So we have to remember that the book of Acts is actually a historical source. Um, Josephus is another major writing. And then we have uh, random bits and pieces from Roman letters sent to each other. So Festus is a bit of a mystery. So he shows up on scene to replace Felix, who's been deported to go see Nero in Rome because they're fed up with his lack of leadership. So Rome is really frustrated with what's taking place in Israel. Um, The relationship just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, There seems to be more revolutionaries, um, more and more talk of fighting war against Rome, which really, you know, from a Roman perspective makes no sense. Mm -hmm. You know, the Jews don't have a shot at all. Now they have a relationship with God. They believe that God will vindicate them and God will come alongside them and help them uh, to victory like they did with Judas Maccabeus over the Greeks. And so, you know, there there is some historical precedent for them being able to do this, but Rome is just uh, inc- incredibly, incredibly efficient. And they literally have thousands upon thousands of soldiers all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, they're basically an indefeatable force at this time. So they remove Felix, but Rome doesn't want to fight a war. Why? Because Soldiers have to be replaced. They're expensive. It requires a lot of training, a lot of money. You know, war is a very, very expensive business to undertake. So Mm -hmm. Rome wants to keep the peace, the Pax Romana, uh, as it was called. And Felix really has ticked off the Jews by killing them, slaughtering them, crucifying them. He was just awful. He was tyrannical in the way that he led and the way that he ruled. And so the Jews couldn't stand him. They actually sent a delegation to Rome uh, to complain to Rome about his leadership and get this, Rome agreed, yeah, okay, he's a bit harsh. So they revoke him and they send in Festus. And so here we have Festus, who's basically sent to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. So his job is to cool it, chill it out. Um, he, you know, he did a, a pretty decent job. Josephus says he was a decent leader, but he only lasts two years. He dies of some mysterious illness. We're not exactly sure what happened. So he's not, not on the scene uh, that long. And ultimately 
um, the Romans are unable to keep the peace and it erupts into to, uh, a rebellious civil, not a civil war, a rebellious war against Rome and uh, things get really ugly. This is uh, based on no historical evidence whatsoever, but I suspect Festus was poisoned. Oh, wow. Just putting that out there. Yeah. Just Logic there. and accusation 2,000 yeah. years I'm later. Just, just yeah, putting there's it out there. no evidence for that <laughs> suggestion whatsoever, but thank you for your insight. Yeah, you guys are welcome. But it's out there. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, hey, verses uh, three through four continue. It says, these leaders uh, in Jerusalem asked Festus as a favor to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, planning to ambush him and kill him on the way. So maybe the, maybe those guys who uh, pl- pledged not to eat till they killed Paul mm-hmm. are just like real hungry. <laughs> They're like, please bring him back here. It's been two years. Yeah. But Festus replied that Paul was at Caesarea and he himself would be returning there soon. So man, Paul's been in prison for or home arrest or whatever for a really long time, like over two years. And these guys are still trying to kill him. Is it possible that God has kept Paul in prison, locked up like this for his own good? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's two things. Um, You know, this is one of Paul's most productive times in his ministry. And so I want everybody to think about that. Some of you are frustrated. Well, he wrote many of his letters while he was in prison because he's unable to do other things. He also would have been exposed probably to uh, the gospel of Matthew. He probably would have exposed. Uh, so some people believe that uh, Mark is the earliest gospel. Uh, church history records that Matthew is the first gospel. So, um, you know, my opinion is that Matthew is the first gospel. It makes the most sense. It was written to a Jewish audience. It would have come out of Jerusalem at the earliest age. Uh, Mark would have been written uh, based upon the sermons of Peter in Rome. So we have to wait until Peter gets to Rome and he preaches those gospels. And so we know that Luke says that there are other gospels. So he's probably referring to those two gospels as he writes his. So Paul is being exposed to those gospels, those stories, uh, Mark's sources, Matthew's sources. Mm -hmm. And so he's writing that down. So it was a really productive learning time for Paul, even though he felt like he was accomplishing nothing. And and if if I look back at my life and I look back at so many of the times where I felt like I was going nowhere, Sandals was going nowhere. Those were really productive times where God was growing me, teaching me, uh, helping me to learn and understand him. And that's just what I would say for so many of you that are frustrated. You're like, why is God delaying? Um, and, and God's you know delaying because he's, literally cooking something good up in your life. And so you just got to keep trusting that. And, you know, we all want God to microwave, but he loves to crock pot. You know what I'm saying? He just cooks it and it simmers mm-hmm. all day long. And it just takes a while because the very best things in our life come out over time. And so Paul's letters, um, you know, some of Paul's ideas, uh, the ability to safely uh, have people come and visit him and talk and learn and grow uh, where he's not able to do that when he's traveling. Because remember everywhere he went, like he, his life was threatened. Yeah. Now he's in, he's literally in a Roman city, in a Roman prison, he's safe. I mean, he's in the safest place he could possibly be, mm-hmm. which happens to be prison. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I just got an email today from a guy in our church who uh, has just been sentenced to a year in county jail and he's frustrated. Uh, he made a mistake. Uh, he was on parole, drank, drank some alcohol, got a little excited, caused a scene. And when you're on parole... Um, that's bad news. And so he was sentenced to a a year in prison. And so he just sent me an email. I just read it before the show. He's frustrated. And, you know, it's certainly not what I hoped for. I know it's not what he hoped for. It's not what his wife hoped for. But I'm guessing that God's going to do some things in his life in this next year and really help cement some of his faith and really get him back on his feet. And um, I don't believe that that year in prison is going to be wasted. I think it's going to be a good time for him. And so, um, you know, I, I certainly am not hoping that our listeners are going to prison. But uh, sometimes we feel like we're in prison and mm-hmm. we're just going through some heartache and some hurt and we feel like, you know, why on earth is God doing this? And I'm just here to tell you, I, I can't tell you how many times I've said, God, what are you doing? And years later, I'm like, oh, oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not that every question will be answered, but many of them are. And they're a- answered in profound ways that are experienced over time 
uh, and with experience and wisdom studying God's scripture. So Paul's in prison. He's not happy about it. He doesn't want to yeah. be there. You're going to hear that next week in verse 26. He says, "I w- or chapter 26, I wish all of you were as I am except for these chains. So he's not excited to be in prison yeah. as, you know, neither you nor I or, you know, none of us would be, but he's making the most of his time. And that's what I would say, no matter what you're going through, make the most of his time. Uh, years ago when I thought I had throat cancer and I had to undergo surgery because I couldn't talk. I think you went to church back then. I don't mm-hmm. know if yeah. you were a part of Sandals back then, but it was a big deal. And I, I really, really struggled. And Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church sent me a note and um, it was very, very simple. I mean, I memorized it. He said, God is with you. Learn whatever you can during this time. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it, I, honestly, it ticked me off. I thought it was trite and quick and, you know, but it was the best advice anyone's ever given me in my life. God was mm-hmm. with me. And what I had to learn during that time was God doesn't care about my career. He cares about my character mm-hmm. and my character was refined and I grew and, um, you know, um, uh, I'm very, very thankful for for that input. I mean, who in their life gets Rick Warren, uh, one yeah. of the greatest uh, pastoral leaders of our time? Uh, you know, he's an apostle-like figure of our time that sends a note that says, hey, think about this. And, mm-hmm. you know, I certainly wasn't grateful for the surgery, but it turned out, you know, I didn't have cancer. I was okay. I'm able to talk and preach and, and God has blessed me in many ways. But that was a hard, hard thing to go through. Right. But God was with me. And so that's what I'd say, no matter what you're going through, divorce, bankruptcy, and I've seen people crumble. I have watched people crumble and walk away from the faith. And, um, you know, trials do one of two things. They test your faith and prove that it's true, or they test your faith and it proves that your faith is false. You know, everybody's a fair weather Christian. Everybody loves to say God is good. Um, But is God good, you know, even when you're frustrated or you're going through something difficult? So Mm. great questions. Mm. So in uh, verses five through eight, it says that the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and made many serious accusations they couldn't prove. Paul denied the charges and said, I'm not guilty of any crime against the Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman government. So is this a different group of accusers now or the same group of people just trying again with a new guy in charge? Yeah, that's what's bizarre. It's, it's some of the same and some new. So Jewish leadership in Jerusalem is in flux. Like I said, uh, the reign under Felix has been extremely hard on Romans and Jews. Uh, Ananias, uh, the high priest that we've talked a lot about has been uh, removed and uh, a new priest has been appointed. Uh, We're gonna talk about Agrippa in a little bit. So uh, Agrippa, uh, although he is not allowed to rule all of Israel, still has the authority to select the high priest. So Agrippa has that authority. Uh, Rome has given him to still act like a king in some ways, even though really uh, Felix and Festus are superior to him, they don't choose the high priest. It's still something that is kept within Jewish leadership. So um, I think that's why Luke here translates Jewish leadership or uh, uh, priests plural, because there's such an influx. There's so many of them. So Ananias is probably still lurking in the background. He's still pulling the strings from behind. He's still a political force but he doesn't have the position. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's happening. So I think it's some new, some old, they're still bitter. They want this guy dead. Um, and I think a lot of times, you know, when you look at societies, people are always looking for a scapegoat to blame all their problems on. And so Paul's an easy target and they want him dead. Right. And that way they don't have to take any responsibility for what's taking place themselves. Yeah. So Festus, uh, starting in verses nine, a- actually asks Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? But Paul replies, no. 
This is the official Roman court, so I ought to be tried right here. You know very well I am not guilty of harming the Jews. If I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I'm innocent, no one has a right to turn me over to these men to kill me. Man, why would Paul say that he's willing to die here? That seems pretty bold. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great, great testimony to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so what that means, if we've done something wrong, we need to pay the price. And so specifically, one of the things that bothers me is when I see uh, inmates on death row who have a conversion experience and they still fight the death penalty. I really believe that they should submit uh, to the penalty for their crimes that they've committed if they have had a genuine conversion with Christ. Um, Paul says here, look, if, I, if I've done something deserving of death, then, then kill me, mm-hmm. but I haven't. So, I mean, obviously, if you're, if you're innocent on death row, you should continue to uh, fight for your life. But if, you know, if you did something terrible, the greatest testimony you can give to Jesus is owning up to what you've done wrong. Um, I mean, that's what repentance is. It's being real about the sin in our lives. And so, so, so many of these uh, Christ-like conversions I always wonder about on death row because it's like, look, man, you know, all that awaits you is heaven and, and glory. And so go there and be with Jesus and on your way, set an example for what genuine repentance looks like. And that's owning up for your crimes. Um, so, you know, that reminds me of the story that we've shared here from is Bill and Carrie that, who, you know, as they came to know Jesus and got saved and plugged into the church here at Sandals in Southern California, you know, I think she had something going on legally back in Kentucky. Yeah. 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 Okay. And ended up going back and standing before the judge and really taking ownership and fessing up to mm-hmm. uh, what she did because of the way that God was moving in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was a difficult process. I mm-hmm. mean, that they went through, I remember. Yeah. So. We'll put that, they actually shared their story with us. I'll, we'll put that in the show notes at debrief.show slash 44 and on our Facebook page as well. It's a pretty, really inspiring story. Yeah, totally. So then in verse 12, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus confers with his advisors and replies, very well, you've appealed to Caesar and to Caesar you will go. So this seems like a really big deal. Why would Paul have chosen to say that phrase, I appeal to Caesar? Yeah, he he's, okay, so Festus is new. He doesn't know Festus. He's come to know Felix. He's felt pretty safe with Felix. Felix is protective, but Festus, uh, we got to go back up to verse nine, wanting to please the Jews. So he's playing the political card. So he knows that Paul is innocent, but he wants, remember he's been sent to quell the rebellion. He's Mm -hmm. been sent to to quell all of this angst. So he's got a, a pretty high command from Rome. And the problem is Paul's Roman citizen, so it's a delicate march. I mean, if Paul's a Jewish citizen, he's dead. Mm-hmm. If he's not a Roman, we're not having this conversation. He is dead, gone, forget about it. He means nothing to Festus. Right. The problem is he's a Roman citizen and Festus can be held accountable for sure. Paul's death. Yeah. If his family, who, Paul's family was probably a high-ranking Roman family. Yeah. And so they, they, they could complain to uh, Rome and that would cause a great deal of problems for Festus. So I think Paul is having some real questions about Festus's leadership. He's like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Because if if Festus could kill Paul, it would be a really easy way to appease the Jews and start mm-hmm. easing those political well, tensions. And the best way out for Festus is to say, I didn't kill this Roman citizen. The Jews did. I sent him to Jerusalem to stand trial and they killed him on the way. Mm-hmm. So it's an easy out for him. And right. I think Paul is like, okay, this this guy is not my friend. I need to get out of here ASAP. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he says, I appeal to Caesar. As we talked about, you know, in the weekend services that as a Roman, when you were facing a trial that resulted in death, you had the right to appeal. So as a Roman, you can't appeal like if this was a, a financial issue or uh, maybe even some kind of punishment. But when, it, when the crimes was penalty was death, the Roman could appeal to be tried by a court of um, 
his fellow citizens, just like in America, we get to stand before fellow Americans when we're tried. A judge doesn't decide, fellow citizens decide. And so he, he and this is really where that idea comes from. So he's going to go to Rome and, and be held accountable before fellow Romans who will judge him. Because at this point in time, he's just like, I don't trust this guy. He sees something in Festus that makes him feel like Festus isn't ready for this. And ultimately it could lead in his death. And, Paul, and the will of God is not for Paul to die in Jerusalem. The will of God is for Paul to go to Rome. And so, you know, maybe this is an instance where Paul is trying to help God out. And so he just says, <laughs> yeah. okay, or, you know, we, we don't know, but ultimately this is how God got Paul to Rome in a protected way. I mean, you're going to see as we study, it was quite a difficult journey, not, mm-hmm. not a fun journey, um, but, but God's going to get Paul there and Paul's going to stand before uh, a Roman court. So that's why. Okay. So a few days later, King Agrippa arrives with his sister Bernice to pay their respects to Festus. And they end up staying there several days and and start to talk about Paul. Um, So I guess you hinted about this a little bit with the power structure here, but I was just kind of wondering, like, why would a king make a trip to pay respect to a governor? Yeah. So Agrippa is a weird dude. So he is related. He's the great, great, or he's the great grandson of Herod the Great. So if you come to Jerusalem with us in 2018, Everything that you see, almost everything that you see is built by Herod, Herod the Great. He's the greatest builder in Israel history. Solomon is not, David is not, Herod the Great is. He actually built Caesarea, the city, or, or, or began it. And so oh, okay. um, he's the great builder. He built all of these things, brought in aqueducts, did all these amazing things, truly was a great architectural leader. Um, his grandson Agrippa becomes king at the age of, uh, it's like 17, I think. So he's really not ready to rule. And so uh, Agrippa is raised in Rome. So he's not been raised in Israel. He, he, you know, he's from a Jewish family and so is Bernice, but he's been raised in Rome. He's become friends with many of the future Caesars of Rome. So this guy, you know, basically went to really, really important schools mm-hmm. um, as a child. Uh, you know, he would have been educated in our Harvard, our Yale, and... Um, he knows everybody, but he was too young. And so when they did this, they, they put the Roman protectorate uh, over him so that he could grow up. Eventually, they're going to give him more cities. They're going to promote to him. But he is submissive to the Roman uh, governor at this point. Got it. Um, and, and that's basically because, you know, Rome is growing less and less patient with the Jews and, and more and more frustrated with the lack of leadership. But even when Jesus stands trial, right, he goes both before Herod and Pilate. Mm-hmm. And so, so they work together. They're not really friends. They're really political enemies striving for the same piece of power. And so um, that's who Agrippa is, but he's the king basically of the Northern cities. Um, and it's really only his only power in Jerusalem was that he got to appoint the high priest, but uh, Rome really controls Jerusalem at this point. So um, it's a difficult situation and, you know, something very, very rough to politically navigate. Okay, so Festus and Agrippa are, are having these conversations about Paul in the neighborhood of verse 17. They, they go, uh, he says, when his accusers came here for the trial, I didn't delay. I called the case the very next day and ordered Paul brought in, but the accusations made against him weren't any of the crimes I expected. Instead, it was something about their religion and a dead man named Jesus who Paul insists is alive. So would Festus or Agrippa have even remembered or been aware of what had actually happened to Jesus, like historically? No, because so A, he's not old enough. So he, he's a very, very young leader. So he wouldn't have been alive at that time. Uh, his his father would have been alive. But remember, he was not raised with his father. He was raised in Rome. So he's been shipped off to school. So his awareness of uh, the Jewish religion really is based upon what his family has taught him and what he knows. There's not a deep appreciation for uh, 
the Jerusalem high court because they're rivals. So the Sanhedrin really is a rival to his family's leadership. So okay. they're not friends. They're like Democrats and Republicans. They don't like right. each other, even though they're all Jews. Um, and he's a political opportunist looking for uh, the power to rise, as is his sister, Bernice, uh, who seems to have a real appetite um, uh, for um, you know political position. And so she works really, really hard. So no, I don't think that they would have been aware other than what they've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, they certainly would have been aware of the things that Paul did, the miracles that he did. I mean, he's a very, very famous individual, whether you like him or not, he's very, very famous. So even you know, if you're a Christian, he's famous because he's your spiritual leader. If you're not a Christian, he's still famous, A, because you don't like him, and B, because he does miracles. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's done some pretty amazing miracles that um, you know, news travels fast when right. it comes to that. About how long had it been at this point since Jesus would have, yeah, so this is probably AD 59, AD 60, um, right, right around there as, is when uh, Festus takes over. So, you know, 27 to 30 years since the, the death of Christ, we're not exactly sure, uh, you know, what year Christ died or when he was born. That math is a little fuzzy, but we're close. So not that, not that long, but remember Romans didn't live very long. So, mm-hmm. so for us, the, the people all would have still been alive, but the average age of a person during the Roman empire was 32. Oh. So yeah, so Stephanie's just about done. It's about, about time <laughs> so, to wrap it up. I've been well, dead. Are, I, yeah, yeah, I've been dead like fifteen so. years. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So they, they don't live very long. So you know they would they wouldn't know much. Okay. So then Festus is talking to Agrippa and he says, I was at a loss to know how to investigate these things. So I asked him whether he'd be willing to stand trial on these charges in Jerusalem. But Paul appealed to have his case decided by the emperor. So I ordered that he be held in custody until I could arrange to send him to Caesar. Agrippa says, I'd like to hear him myself. And Festus says, yeah, we will tomorrow. So if Paul's already appealed to Caesar, does he need to testify before Agrippa too? Yeah, no, he doesn't have to. But as you're going to see, Festus is a little worried because he's sending Paul to Rome, but he's not exactly sure why. He doesn't know what the charges are. So like in our day and age, before you are taken to court, uh, the prosecuting attorney has to go before a judge and prove that there is reasonable, uh, there, there are reasons as to why you should be taken to court. Yeah. And a judge can say, no, there's not enough evidence here. There's no trial here. It's a waste of people's time. So Festus basically like this guy's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. I have to come up with a reason and explanation as to why Paul should be tried. Maybe Agrippa can help me out. So Festus would be a newbie. Agrippa would be more of a seasoned politician. He's also has a Jewish heritage. So he would have been considered an expert on Judaism. And so maybe he can help me figure out what to say and what to write this, because here's the thing that's scary. If Rome feels like um, Festus is wasting their time, they're going to be very upset. And what they're going to do is they're going to call for Festus. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always end well. Rome, Rome, you know, it was good to be a Roman until it wasn't. And when it was bad to be a Roman, you know, uh, you know, the famous saying, Brutus and Cassius, they too were honorable men as they stabbed Julius Caesar in the back. Um, so it was a very, very uh, cutthroat society. Uh, when you were in favor, it was wonderful. When you were out of favor, it was bad. And it was bad very, very quickly. I mean, people died in the night, disappeared, things happened. Um, I mean, you know, Romans were vicious people. So they had this Greek, you know, philosophy of we're sophisticated and we're legal, but they had this tenacious appetite for slaughtering and killing their political enemies. So Festus is a little worried here because Mm -hmm. anytime you're involving the courts, which would be, you know, the judiciary process, which is a dangerous process. Um, just like nowadays, none of us wants to go to court. We don't, we don't want to be involved in that. That's, yeah. a, that's a very difficult process. Nobody wants to be there. It's like yeah. traffic, you know, yeah. you don't want it. You're just going to pay the ticket. I don't, I don't want to get out of that. Uh, I mean, I don't want to be there and have to deal with that. I mean, courts have 
tough place. 2,000 years ago, it was a violent place. It was a place where you could lose your head rather quickly. So Festus has got to figure out how to word this in such a way where it really uh, divorces him from any responsibility. He's like, hey, I did everything I could. I tried to uh, I tried to reason with this guy. Felix left it for me. This is a case, and, and, and he appealed to you, so I've got to do what he's asked me to do, yeah. and I'm sending it. So here's the charges that Paul is facing, which are really bogus charges. Mm-hmm. So we noticed that in Matthew 10, 8 through 20, Jesus says, you will stand trial before governors and kings because you're my followers, but this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. When you're arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time, for it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. Is it possible that what's happening right now with Paul is a fulfillment of what Jesus was saying there in Matthew? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, all throughout the book of Acts, Luke says this was not done in a closet. This was not done. This has been done out in the open. And, and, and why? Because Christianity is to be proclaimed. You know, this isn't some weird religion, you know, that we believe in uh, because two dudes, you know, smoked some doobie and, hmm. you know, had a vision in a closet. These things have been seen. These things have been heard. This thing is very, very public. And the apostle Paul is now fulfilling the words of Jesus who said, my gospel, my kingdom will be proclaimed and you will stand before trials because of me. And don't worry, cause I'm gonna be there. And man, the apostle Paul, man, his sermon next week is thick and it's real and it's aggressive. And uh, it's just so amazing because, you know, the apostle Paul's already made his case multiple times, but now he has a new audience with which he can try to evangelize and share the gospel. And that's his intent in his heart. And so it's just amazing. You know, the apostle Paul, if we could interview him, would probably say he feels like he's not accomplishing the will of God. Like Mm -hmm. he's spinning his thumbs, you know, sitting in prison. And the reality is, guess what he's doing? He's actually doing the very will of God. Mm -hmm. And the very things that Jesus said that are happening are happening. And uh, it's probably, you know, in this prison cell that uh, maybe Paul gets to read the first copy of Matthew or some of the earliest manuscripts of Matthew or the, the earliest stories that Matthew used to write his gospel. So it's a pretty powerful time. And that would have been reassuring. I mean, think about that for Paul to be able to read those words that Matthew wrote down, mm-hmm. you know, oh, this is why this is happening. And, and let me just say that again. And that's why all of us need to be reading scripture because it's so encouraging when we're going through difficult things. Because if we don't read scripture, what we feel like is this is only happening to me because God hates me and it has no purpose. And when we read the Bible, we find out that even though these things are happening to me, God loves me and he will fulfill his purpose. Romans 8 uh, 28, even though, you know, for all things work to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Somehow, some way, this horrible thing is going to make sense in the end. And that's why I got to read the scriptures to trust God in this moment, because Paul's not happy about this. Um, You know, he's gone from one corrupt leader to another corrupt leader. These crazy people in Israel, man, they haven't forgotten and they still want to kill him. And so it kind of feels like he's just kind of spinning his wheels. And I know there's a lot of people in our church that feel that way. I feel like I'm not accomplishing anything, but you are if you're trying to follow God and, and somehow, some way God's going to use everything that you're going through to fulfill his purpose. And, and that's, what's so amazing here. Yeah. And you mentioned that how Paul maybe is getting excited about this new opportunity verses 23 through 25. It's like, so the next day, Agrippa and Bernice arrived at the auditorium with great pomp accompanied by the military officers and prominent men of the city. Festus orders that Paul be brought in. And then Festus says, King Agrippa and all who are here, This is the man whose death is demanded by all the Jews, both here and in Jerusalem. But in my opinion, he's done nothing deserving death. However, since he appealed his case to the emperor, I have decided to send him to Rome. It just seems like 
even though Paul is clearly innocent, everyone here has gathered to hear him speak. And it almost feels like God just continues to increase the platform and the opportunities that Paul has to make bigger and bigger impact with the gospel. Yeah. So, and so what's amazing here is, I mean, this is the who's who of Caesarea. Mm-hmm. This is all the biggest deals. This is all the most famous people. This is all the powerful people, all of the wealthy people. So, so think about that. I mean, how- It's like how, the influencers. Yeah, this is the influencers. These are the people who affect policy. This is the people who will change the world. This is the people who have the abilities to change things. And that's what's so amazing. So here's Jesus, this nobody from a nobody town called Nazareth. And here we are 30 years later and Jesus, the name of Jesus is being proclaimed at the highest levels of government. And so when we read like the book of Romans, the apostle Paul actually says hello to many of the servants in the household of Caesar. That's where the gospel has gone to. It's already made its way. It's already being discussed within the household of Nero. Isn't mm-hmm. that crazy? Mm-hmm. So um, there's this tension. Even, I mean, I mean, think about this, you know, um, some religious leader, uh, you know, basically dying in 1990. And here we are talking about that within the realm of the Trump administration, we know that there are followers of this religious leader from 1990 and they are leveraging political decisions and power at the highest levels of, of the United States of America, mm-hmm. just from 1990. I mean, that's the time span here. And that's why so many people, when they criticize the Bible, oh, well, too much time elapsed. It's no time. Mm-hmm. It's no time at all. We're talking about 25, 30 years, you know? So from 1990 to now is 26 years. So it's about exactly the same mm-hmm. time. Uh, it, it, it's not that long. And there's no internet, there's no telephone, there's no mass communication. Yeah. The gospel has been carried by foot, by boat, and by donkey. And it is all over the world at the highest levels of power the world has ever seen. And uh, back to that uh, verse you quoted, Jesus was right. And um, it's amazing. And so, I mean, it's playing right into his hands. Think about this. He gets to preach to people who wouldn't ever listen to him. And not because Paul's called them, but because mm-hmm. Festus has. And so as a, out of a political favor, you know, to try to help Pestus, Pestus, Festus <laughs> out and keep his head, they're all gonna come and they're all gonna listen. And so in Caesarea, we know that there were 5,000 soldiers in Caesarea. So five huge, huge generals mm-hmm. of a thousand men each. And so all of those guys would have been there, you know, the local mayor, the local leaders, the wealthy people, uh, people that own shipping yards and houses. You know, you're talking about the economic, the highest of the highest. They're all there and they get to hear the gospel. And Paul, man, next week lays it on thick, but you're gonna have to wait for that because <laughs> it's another one of these dun-dun-dun chapters. Yeah, man, why is Luke so into these cliffhangers here at the end of all these chapters the last couple of weeks? Yeah, well, Luke is not. So Luke did not come up with the idea of chapters. A lot of people don't know that, but the Bible is not originally written with any chapters or any verses. So this this idea of chapters um, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible really starts with the Masoretes. So it's called the Masoretic Text. And so they begin to kind of divide um, books into chapters. And so everything else before that time would have been identified by the book, the book of Isaiah, the book of Deuteronomy, the book okay. of Exodus, but it really becomes helpful in designating where are you talking about yeah. in Deuteronomy? Where are you talking about they're in big, Isaiah? And long. so they begin to kind of divide it that way. And so their divisions are a little different than ours. And so then about the 13th century, a Catholic priest, uh, he begins to divide really with this idea of chapters. And so he's the one that really starts to section um, uh, the, the Bible into chapters. And some of it's really, really good. And unfortunately, some of it like this is, it's, it, you know, because Luke didn't write it with a chapter. He's not, you know, having a conclu- yeah. concluding thought like you would write a book. And so it's right in the middle of an idea. So sometimes it's, it's not always perfect. And that even becomes a problem with Bible verses. So then in the 15th century, 
uh, about 500 years ago, we started getting this idea of verses, which became an even easier way for us to designate specifically what you were talking about. And then at first, the chapters were kind of on the side of the scriptures, and then uh, the verses were also on the side. And then eventually, with the publication, I believe, of the Geneva Bible, the verses were kind of slipped in, and they've kind of stayed and stuck. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it for me, it's something that's very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect. Yeah. Uh, it's not inspired. But it is helpful because I can tell you, okay, today we're going to look at Acts 25, verse 25, and you know exactly where to go. Right. Whereas if I had to say, hey, turn to chapter 25 and go about three quarters of the way down in the chapter and look for the word you know, but, yeah. you know, that that's a, that's a little more challenging than to simply state, go 25, 26. And it's right. just a testimony to how valuable and how important the scriptures are that they needed to be divided in such a way. Um, and in some days, I think the message is kind of done away with uh, this idea of verses. So like yeah. if you read Eugene Peterson's translation, he's kind of done away with that idea, trying to point back to the fact that well, that's not how it was originally written, but I think that the verses are very, very helpful and uh, very, very important for locating things, for memorizing things, for being able to speak quickly with your friends and family members about where you are. And um, so I think it's a beautiful thing. Uh, the church has given that gift to us uh, to make it more accessible and easier to memorize and identify. So that's why. But if you're wondering why why does the chapter end and it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's why. All right, so the big cliffhanger comes in verses 26 and 7 when uh, Festus asks this question. Yeah, he says, But what shall I write the emperor? For there is no clear charge against him. So I've brought him before all of you, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we examine him, I might have something to write. For it makes no sense to send a prisoner to the emperor without specifying the charges against him. So how bad would it have been for Festus to send someone to Caesar and not really having any real charges? Yeah, it could be really bad. So if he frustrates the court, um, like I said, you don't, want, you, don't, you don't want your name mentioned in court. You, you you just don't want that. And so he's got to be very, very clear. And so he's brought Agrippa, who is a religious expert, according to Festus, who is religiously ignorant of yeah. Judaism. So he's brought Agrippa uh, and, and Agrippa's brought Bernice. Uh, so his is his political sidekick. And these two individuals are very, very powerful. Like I said, they were both raised in the Roman courts, in the highest schools of Rome. Very, very powerful. Bernice almost becomes the wife of Titus, who is the uh, Roman emperor who actually conquers Jerusalem. Okay. The only reason that he is not allowed to marry her is because she's Jewish and racism was real even back then. So he was in love with her, but as um, you know, the Caesar elect, he was allowed to date her, but when he became the actual Caesar, um, it was considered, no, 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 no. So uh, he has to dump her and move on, but she eventually, eventually marries another king. She is a political opportunist and apparently very beautiful, but her and Agrippa have a weird relationship. They're often accused of actually, um, uh, what do you call it when you, incest, incest yeah, something. an incestuous relationship. So there's no, there's no substantiating that, but it is mentioned. Uh, let's just say this, they had a weird relationship as brother and sister that kind of gave people the EBGBs, but mm-hmm. Rome was notorious for weird relationships, right. which is one of the reasons why Jews were just so um, unbelievably disgusted by Roman practices. And so, um, you know, that's another great question to get into if we eventually get into the book of Rome. A lot of people wonder why like issues like homosexuality are not dealt with in the gospels. Why are they only mentioned in the epistles? And it's because it wouldn't have been a, uh, a point of theological confusion for Jews. So homosexuality would have been considered uh, a Roman issue mm-hmm. or a Gentile issue. And that's not to say that there weren't Jews that were homosexual. If they were homosexual, they were deep kept in the closet. The yeah, they kept it on the down low. It's when Christianity begins to make its inroads 
into Rome. And so when we look at Romans chapter one, guess what issue pops up? Homosexuality. Hmm. Romans one, the very first chapter. Why? Because Romans sexually express themselves just like in our culture, anyway. Like you pick yep. your own gender, you pick your own sex, you pick whatever you want to do. That's how Rome did it. I mean, you know, they invented the term Roman orgy. You know, yeah, that's where yeah. it comes from. They were very, very sexually um, explicit in the way that they operated. And so Agrippa and Bernice, you know, being Jewish people would have been raised in that Roman culture where just kind of anything goes, no holes barred sexually. So they come back to Israel. You know, I mean, it would be like being raised in LA or Manhattan and you go back to Podunk, Kentucky. Everybody's yeah. like, that boy ain't right. You know, it's yes. just it's just a little weird, you know. Yes. Uh, you, you are culturally way different. Um, and so it, there was just a lot of rumors. And mm-hmm. remember, the Sanhedrin are not friends with Agrippa and Bernice. They are political rivals trying to vie for the same position. So Agrippa wants to be a king like David or Solomon. Uh the Sanhedrin, they want to lead like Moses or Aaron. Mm-hmm. So it's it's two it's two ideas of how how we should be led. So the Sanhedrin would say, God is king and we are his high priests. Agrippa would say, God is king and he has placed me as king. And so it's it's just this massive tension thing. So how much of this is true? You know, how much of it is just, you know, the inquirer? <laughs> yeah. You know, we don't know. Um, because, you know, inquiring minds existed back then Boom. and gossip magazines. So, but and that's what they Festus say about hanging out on the side. Who, by, by the way, just realized this whole time I've been picturing Festus in my mind as the Uncle Fester from the Adams Family. Does that remember that little, yeah. little bald guy with the black robe? <laughs> yeah. Work, works out, I think, in this context. It's yeah. a fun way, fun way to read the Bible, guys. So, uh, yeah. Well, hey, excellent, excellent show. Man, we uh, love having you guys here listening on the show. Listen, if you're not a part of Scandals Church, we announced some huge news this last weekend across all three of our locations on the first anniversary of Sandals Church East Valley. Man, we are trying to launch two brand new Sandals Church locations, uh, locations that have yet to be determined uh, in 2017, and we are working as hard as we possibly can. So we have this goal of raising an additional $300,000 by the end of 2016 to help fund uh, the ability to launch those new locations as soon as we have the opportunity next year. So if you are uh, a listener of the show and you want to help and support the work that God is doing here at Sandals Church. We would be so grateful for that. If you um, would be willing to make a year-end financial contribution to the work that's going on here at Sandals Church, uh, you can do that by visiting sandalschurch.com slash launch. We would be so grateful for your support of what God's doing here at our church. That's right. And if you do attend Sandals Church, we would love for you to pick up one of our debrief t-shirts or stickers at your campus. A fantastic holiday gift. It is a fantastic holiday gift. It's a very comfortable t-shirt, if I do say so myself. Producer Kelly's Wearing one today, supporting yeah, looks, the beautiful so debrief good. logo. We would love for you to pick one of those up. Those all those proceeds go toward the show and help us continue to do more cool stuff. If you got questions you want to get on the show for next week, you can uh, hit us up on Facebook. Just search for the Debrief Podcast or head online to debrief.show. Click the big red button that says "Ask a Question," and of course, you can find the show notes to today's episode online at debrief.show/slash forty-four. All right, let's Stephanie. You got some uh, some Christianese for us to unpack today? Oh, I sure do. Learning Christianese, I think I'm learning Christianese, I really think so. Learning Christianese, I think I'm learning Christianese, I really think so. So this week on Learning Christianese, what do Christians mean when they say walk? Like, how's your walk, brother? Oh, yeah. So uh, 1 John 2.8 says, whoever claims to know him must walk as Jesus did. I believe that's the NIV. Mm. That's the translation I memorized Bible as a kid. Wow. Yeah. So, so what it means by walk is, is your religious journey. And so that's what it means. So the idea of a follower of Jesus is one who walks alongside Jesus. 
And so when we ask, how is your walk? The question is, how is your journey with Jesus? And so, um, you know, it's just a very, very religious way to ask somebody how they're doing in their faithful yeah. relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm a very walking confusing with a limp. way. I'm walking yeah. with a limp. <laughs> yeah, I'm walking confused. Justin, how are you doing in your faithful relationship with yeah. Jesus Christ? Yeah. My hip hurts, guys. Yeah. Aww. And so we need to just remember that, that some of this stuff, you know, although biblical, um, you know, uh, confuses people. And so, you know, you wouldn't ask someone's, you know, marriage, how's your walk? You would say, how's your marriage? <laughs> and so what I would say is, you know, how's your relationship with God doing? How are you doing in your relationship with God? You know, what does that look like as you journey through life as a husband, uh, a father, uh, a daughter, a sister, uh, a wife, a friend, an employer, an employee? What does that look like? How, the question is, how is it impacting your everyday life? And so that's what we say is, how is your walk? How is your connectivity with God and what does that look like? So great question. Walking tall by the blood of the lamb. Wow. Yeah, that's confusing. You're too good at that. <laughs>